Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of the prophet Nehemiah in the second chapter, just two short verses, 17 and 18. What's happening here in the story of Nehemiah is that the exiles have been returning in waves from captivity to Jerusalem, and as they do so, they find there a city that has been reduced to shambles. The, the temple was in ruins, and a group was determined to make repairs. Uh, it's a long, difficult process that they won't see all the way through in their lifetime, but they're committed to getting started, rolling up their sleeves, and doing this work not for themselves. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from the epistle 1 John chapter 4 beginning at verse 7 and continuing through verse 21. I invite you to listen <laughs> once more for a word from the Lord as it concludes with verse 17. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In, in this love, it is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, beloved if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. We are reminded and we are assured, both in this passage 
from this letter of John's. We are joined in a holy community, a, a union with God and with one another through our trust in Jesus. That bond is so steadfast that, as Paul writes in Romans, it can stand up, well, it can stand up to anything. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He asks rhetorically, of course not. None of these things will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. The bond of abiding that exists in our covenantal relationship with our Holy Father is absolute. It is unshakable. It is unbreakable. He sent his only begotten, beloved Son to take on flesh and dwell with us. And forever and forever does God commit and promise to abide with us. Abide. I found myself becoming a real fan of that little word. The author uses it here in this selection we heard this morning, describing the closeness of the relationship God has with us and we with God. When I read the description in this context, my mind goes straight to the, to the binding of the Holy Spirit. The word abide or abides appears in this short passage half a dozen times with pretty much precisely the same meaning. It's also found sprinkled liberally throughout scriptural writings that have been attributed to John, where there you'll find more instances of this or related words than come from any other single author of our biblical texts. Suffice it to say that the importance of abiding resonates strongly throughout the writings of this disciple. Though a relatively small word, just six letters and two syllables in English, it can have what I believe to be an extraordinary impact on the Christian life generally, as well as that of this church and of my ministry. As I am, you now know, Hours away from celebrating the anniversary of my birth, yet again, I have been looking back at some of the years of my childhood that I remember fondly. I consider myself very fortunate to have been born where and when I was, conceived at the end of the baby boom, and born at the very beginning of Generation X. I grew up in a two-parent household with no siblings. I thought that was great because I never had to share my toys with anyone. I don't think I would have felt that it was so great though were it not for the community that I was a part of growing up, though we lived on a road that connected two small towns, as they would say in Louisville. Uh, we were considered country folk. Along this flat stretch of highway, there were houses spaced, oh, every 100, 150 yards or so. And between the bottom of one hill and the top of the next one, uh, 
on this stretch of highway, there were all these houses, save two that I can remember, had kids in them. Plenty of kids in them. I made a quick list of names earlier this week, and I could recall 21 who were within about five years of my age, one way or the other. None of us there ever lacked for companionship. I was always at someone else's house with their siblings, or they were always at my house with their siblings. We had the bonds of geography and shared bus drivers and school classes and teachers and homework assignments to keep us together. In his book, Living the Resurrection, Eugene Peterson summarizes the scope of the phrase that lends itself to this morning's sermon title, The Company. It's an odd title, The, the Company of, of the what? The incarnate, no, incarnate, no, it's coherence. It was coined by Charles Williams, who was one of the Inklings. He was like the, the red-headed stepchild of the Inklings. He's the one that you don't hear that much about. He was no Tolkien. He was no C.S. Lewis. But he, he was a pretty bright guy, and he was Christian as well, though his theology was not as orthodox as Lewis's and, and not as Catholic as Tolkien's. But he coined this phrase, the company of the co-inherits to mark a relationship that existed between men and women who find their relationship developing not out of where they lived or where they went to school or what bus they rode, but in the resurrection formation in which they participate in common, namely the, the resurrection of the incarnate God and human Jesus Christ. Church, <laughs> congregation, Fellowship community, these are all more general terms that may or may not convey the same thing, Peterson contends. Indeed, what I experienced growing up was a wonderfully supportive community of other kids and their parents. But even more powerful and profound in our lives is a company of persons who are united not by proximity to one another, but by the power of of the living, loving God who made and claims and redeems and sanctifies each and every one of us. That's the promise that Peterson reminds us Williams is speaking of as he, as he then goes on to warn us this. This kind of friendship, this kind of company is under fierce assault in the world we live in. Now mind you, this was in the 1930s and 40s in England, but he said that means that one of the primary conditions for participating in the resurrection of Jesus is also under assault. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, I would add that the past many months have borne this out in new and distressing ways. Our understanding of ourselves as the body of Christ has been challenged on many fronts during the pandemic. The huge disruptions it's had on the world and the church have been multidimensional, and not the least of these, I think, has been the dilution of our sense 
of community. This has been an essential tenet of the faith that dates back to the very beginnings of the church. In fact, Christian fellowship predates the use of the word church to describe the gatherings of the faithful. We have been forced to re-examine what is at the core of our community, what expressions of this fellowship are available to us, what it means to be a part of that which has been called the company of the co-inherents. I like to think of this expression of the fellowship of the saints as something akin to an extended family. And it is wonderful to have more and more of that extended family back at Rehoboth. However, as part of this workshop on storytelling I have been telling you I have been participating in, it's a, a reminder has come through that course on more than one occasion that the use of the word family to describe any congregation is now discouraged. Now, personally, I, I find that sort of depressing. Uh, but I also understand the rationale as it's been explained behind that sentiment. First off, as kids, not all folks grew up in the situation that I did. I had a very positive family environment. I had a very positive friend environment. I had a very positive and supportive growing up family environment. Some members of our family were a little off. I have inherited some of that. Uh, but I was raised in a, in a good family. Not everyone had that luxury. And so the word family carries with it some baggage that they take into adulthood. And so it can evoke negative associations and memories if we apply it to the church. Though I understand the idea of church as a family is just a foreshadowing of the consummation of the Holy Communion that we will have with one another and with our perfect Heavenly Father one day, we aren't there yet. And so until then, we have our flaws, we have our warts, we have our blemishes. Secondly, the idea of a family may, for some, conjure up images of a closed system. After all, think about how does one become part of a family? Uh, we are born into our family, or we are adopted into our family, or we marry into our crazy family. In any of those cases, there is a pretty high barrier to entry. Now, again, we know that is not the case with our congregation. We proved it once again last week, and we are open to proving it again this week as we admitted a new member into the life and ministry of Old Rehoboth without a great deal of red tape. And we have others who are non-members who are active in the fellowship and the witness of this church. Still, it might be better, we are advised to consider, to think of our fellowship 
as more of a friendly atmosphere than a family one. Perhaps something more like my childhood experience, one that spanned a number of families, yet whose whole was greater than the sum of her parts. However you choose to view it, this much I think is true. What it comes down to is that the body of Christ, both in a universal sense as the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, and this particular and unique expression of it right here, are constructed on a foundation of abiding. There's that word again. God abiding in love with us, we abiding with him and all of us together, abiding in the divine love that is imputed by the Holy Spirit. Abiding. That's a verb that seems as if it's gone out of favor in our culture. Perhaps it has something to do with the sense of commitment that accompanies the word. Few non-cuss words in our modern language carry with them the sort of negative reaction associated with the term commitment. We have never been a more mobile and perhaps less committed society. People routinely switch jobs like they change their clothes. Long gone are the days of the company man, when you worked at the same place from graduation until retirement. Some of that is, to be sure, on account of much more cutthroat employment practices that value penny-pinching and cost-cutting above reputation and loyalty to their people. But much of it also has to do with a me-first mentality on the part of employees who really could care less about who or where they work as long as they are getting rewarded for their work more there than they would be somewhere else. And when that dy dynamic then changes, the freelancer sets off for greener pastures. I was chatting this past week with a fellow who was telling me a story that illustrates this very point. He's a man in his late 60s who said his cousin had moved not long ago to Hawaii. And I thought to myself, as he was telling me this story, well, I, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind finding a little spot to retire to on one of the islands. But he told me the reason that his cousin did this wasn't completely selfish. He had done it, at least in part, so that he could be closer to his son and daughter-in-law who had recently moved out there for work. But... Not long after everyone had gotten settled in this tropical paradise, the young couple up and left for that paradise called Nebraska. The father then set to getting his newly purchased home ready to go back on the market, but even before it sold, his son and wife had moved yet again, this time to Texas. The Academy Award, in case you missed it for Best Picture last week, went to a film called Nomadland, which is not only a literal story about a widow who pulls up stakes and sets out to live out of a camper van, but it's also a metaphoric commentary on the sort of community that can spring up among those who have been displaced from a, another community. That neighborhood that I spoke of growing up in as a kid, it was a very stable place. 
In fact, ours was the first family to move away from it, and that was only after I had become a teenager. A lack of abiding isn't simply a function of one's changing physical location, nor even of the revolving door of our professional relationships either. You can see it happen in personal relationships just as vividly. When you're no longer satisfying my needs in a romantic partnership, well, then I'm out of here because life's too short, you know. I want, I deserve, I need. I need the most happiness I can get for the least investment. That strategy may translate to gains in one's portfolio, but it hardly helps us develop as people and certainly not as Christians. One of the blessings that has come my way since arriving here at Rehoboth is to be in the company of such a group of folks who not only know of, but appreciate the concept of commitment. Some have committed themselves to the same spouse for two, three, three score and 10 years even. Some have committed themselves to the same profession for decades and decades and decades. Some have committed themselves to the same church since infancy. Some have committed to the same land for generations. Y'all are not afraid of commitment. You're a bunch of abiders. The story of your lives bears witness to the powerful spirit of abiding which John writes of as he describes what has been called the company of the co-inherents. I commend you for the example which you have set and maintained through the challenges of the present age as I encourage you to continue to cultivate this relationship with God and with one another even as we explore new possibilities for expanding our understanding of what it means to be part of such a global movement as this one. This sort of communal life, it's built slowly, it's built steadily, it's built intentionally, it's built patiently and forgivingly, and it's built with God's tender care. All of these things cut against the grain of worldly living and mark us as somehow different. As Peterson describes in his aptly titled book, Living the Resurrection, we know and are known by knowing and being known by the living Jesus Christ. That is where we begin. It's a beginning that invites reenactment every day of our lives. We were made to live in relationship with one another and through the abiding love of God in Christ. That knowledge in turn informs our living, our working, our playing and our praying as a people who've been adopted through and in Christ, heirs and co-heirs with him of God's love and covenant promises the company 
of the co-inherents. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.